what is mindfulness? And what is awareness? And how do these two relate? On September 5th, we'll be embarking on a new Buddhist Geeks Life Retreat on the theme of mindful awareness. During the retreat, we'll engage in the practices of mindfulness, of noticing what you notice as you notice it, and the practices of awareness, of simply being with what is. We'll learn how to practice each to see their unique perspective, and we'll learn also how to merge our understanding of the two. If you'd like to join us for this retreat, there's still space open, and we'd love to have you there. You can find out more at BuddhistGeeks.com slash retreats. Buddhist Geeks, exploring the convergence of Buddhism, technology, and culture. What's the sound of one geek giving? Find out at BuddhistGeeks.com slash give. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I am back today with a very special guest. I'm excited to be speaking today with Evan Thompson. Um, Evan, thank you for taking the time to chat with the Buddhist Geeks today. Thanks very much for, for having me on the show. And, you know, uh, as I was mentioning to you before we started chatting, um, your, your name has come up so many times over the course of the several years that I've been doing this show. Um, Dave Vagos mentioned you a, a number of times in terms of being a real um, strong mentor and influence. Um, and I've seen your work come up time and again when we have dialogues around the Mind and Life uh, Institute and the different work that's happening basically in this field of contemplative uh, neuroscience. So it's, it's really exciting for me to to kind of finally sit down and chat with you and, and to learn more about your work, which is, which is very interesting. Great. Thank you. So a little bit about your background. Um, for those that aren't familiar, um, you're a philosopher mm-hmm. and you're professor of philosophy. So this is your full-time gig is to, you know, kind of reflect on the big questions. That's yourself. right. <laughs> that's my, that's my day job, which, which is also my night job as it turns out. <laughs> How is that? Oh, just in the sense that, you know, philosophy uh, kind of grips you. And so it's not like you, at least I'm not one of those philosophers who can sort of, you know, um, leave it in the office at 5 p.m. It, you know, it follows me wherever I go. <laughs> gotcha. Gotcha. So it's a full-time gig. Right. And um, you said you moved a couple of years ago from the University of Toronto. You're now teaching at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver. That's right. And um, your, your areas of, of focus and interest have included many kind of fields. I mean, you have cognitive science on the mm-hmm. one hand, philosophy of, philosophy of mind, uh, phenomenology, cross-cultural philosophy, uh, and especially Asian philosophy and contemporary Buddhist philosophy. And when I, when I was kind of looking at your work, it seemed like you, you really uh, have a depth of, of, of kind of training in the Indian and Tibetan uh, forms of Buddhist philosophy in particular. Is that accurate? Yes, I've studied those. Uh, really, Indian philosophy probably is most central to my work over the years and and also currently. But my first degree, my undergraduate degree, was in Asian studies, and actually, it was um, it was Chinese language and Chinese philosophy, history, literature that I specialized in, and and that led me into studying Buddhism and Buddhist philosophy. I went. I was an undergraduate at Amherst College when Robert Thurman taught there. And he was the one who kind of drew me into studying Buddhist philosophy, which has you know stayed with me all these years. Um, and in 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 the Buddhist tradition, it's really the the classical Indian Buddhist 
philosophers, I suppose you could say, that have been most important to my thinking. Um, also, of course, there's a huge commentarial literature and original philosophical reception of the Indian work in, in Tibet um, that's also important, but I'm, I'm in a way more familiar with the classical Indian sources. Okay, great, great. And, you know, you've written several books. Uh, I'll mention a couple of them because we'll, we'll kind of go into exploring some of the ideas from them today. Um, your first book that you co-authored was The Embodied Mind, mm -hmm. uh, Cog Cognitive Science and Human Experience. Then there's also Mind and Life. Uh, and the most recent is Waking, Dreaming, Being, Self and Consciousness in Neuroscience, Meditation and Philosophy. That's right. And, 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 and that's, in some ways, um, where I want to start. But, but, but before I go into it, I, I wanted to find out a little bit more about your background. You just mentioned some of your, your philosophical study. Um, you know, since this is Buddhist geeks, we like to kind of hear uh, a little bit about the history of, of each of the strands that are kind of coming together in the work you're doing, the sort of hybrid background. Um, so I was wondering if you could share a bit more about um, your background with, uh, both with philosophical training and also your interest in, in consciousness and first-person kind of mm -hmm. contemplative practice. Right. Well, my interest in these things um, and my personal experience with them goes back um, quite a ways. So in the early 1970s, I grew up in a community and institute called the Lindisfarne Association that was founded by my father, William Irwin Thompson. And he was a professor at York University in Toronto, and he left the university. He left a full-time, um, tenured, full-professor position and struck out on his own to create an alternative institute, feeling at the time that the universities really weren't at the leading edge of knowledge and weren't really providing the kind of education that we needed for culture in the, in the late 20th and going into the 21st century. And so what he did is he um, created a residential community and then a network of, of fellows who would come through to teach and participate in conferences. And these fellows were from, they were, they were scientists, philosophers, spiritual, religious teachers, and meditation practice was at the heart of the daily life of the community. And there were different meditation teachers, spiritual, religious teachers, you could say, who would flow through the community at different times. So from a very early age, I was exposed to different kinds of contemplative practice, um, including Buddhist practice. There were monks from the San Francisco Zen Center who lived at Lindisfarne. Um, there were also Sufi contemplatives, Christian contemplatives. So I kind of grew up in a very um, ecumenical non-sectarian, I suppose you could say, contemplative environment that was very much engaged with philosophy and science and ecology and activism in the 1970s and, and going into the 1980s. And I was introduced, really, I suppose, to Buddhism in that context through people like Richard Baker Roshi, who came and participated in conferences, the former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, now of the Crestone Mountain Zen Center in Colorado. Um, and some of the monks from his community, as I mentioned, also lived and taught there. Um, it was where I met at a conference Robert Thurman, who was translating for Nechung Rinpoche. This would have been in 1976 or 1977. So I was maybe 13 or 14 at that time. And I got very interested in Asian contemplative traditions and, and Asian philosophy, especially Buddhism and Taoism. And as a result, I went to study at Amherst College as an undergraduate, particularly because Robert Thurman was teaching there. And I wanted to study Asian studies and I wanted to study with him. 
So I kind of naturally transitioned from being at Lindisfarne into being an undergraduate, um, naturally transitioned in an intellectual sense, I, I suppose you could say it was a bit of a culture difference between a kind of, you know, Northeastern liberal arts college and this 1970s community um, alternative intellectual context. But um, I studied uh, Chinese language and Chinese philosophy and history and then also Buddhist studies with, with Robert Thurman. And along the way was also involved in different kinds of contemplative practices. Um, I had been you know, introduced, as I said, to different forms of meditation when I was a teenager. I also, at a young age, was um, very... Uh, drawn to the practice of Taiji Chuan, which I continue to this day. And so that's a, you know, that's traditionally a, it's a, it's a Chinese martial art, but it has a very contemplative dimension to it, um, a moving meditation dimension. And that's something that um, is, has been very important to me over the years. So then I went into the study of philosophy for graduate school. I, I kind of was at a point where I thought, well, I can go on in Asian studies and Asian religion, or I can go on in philosophy. And I chose philosophy because it was really the philosophical issues about mind and consciousness and the nature of the self that I had been drawn to. And in graduate school, I started working with Francisco Varela, a pioneering neuroscientist who was also a practicing Tibetan Buddhist. And he was someone I had met at the Lindisfarne Association through my father. He had been a scholar in residence and had lived with us. And he knew that Um, as a graduate student, I was studying cognitive science and philosophy of mind and that I had an undergraduate background in, in Buddhist studies and that I was also, um, you know, involved in contemplative practice myself. And so he brought me to Paris where he had just moved to, to set up his lab there to be his research assistant. And out of that grew our book, The Embodied Mind, which was published in 1991. And that was really, I think it's fair to say, the first academic book that explored the relationship between Buddhist practice and Buddhist philosophy and and cognitive science. And that book was also co-authored with Eleanor Roche, who's a psychologist at um, University of California, Berkeley. And so since then, I've gone on in my own professional work as a philosopher to be very much concerned with the interface between Buddhist philosophical traditions and Buddhist contemplative practice especially in their contemporary forms and Western scientific investigation of the mind and all of the philosophical issues that arise around that. And my own personal contemplative practice has involved different things over the years. I was also very much, um, I suppose you could say, um, um, brought up in a context where yoga was a major element on the, on the contemplative scene Uh, My father had been raised um, a Catholic and left the church and had become a yoga practitioner. So I was, I was raised around a lot of um, Hindu yoga contemplative practice as well and have been involved with that at different times of my life, have practiced in different Buddhist contexts. Um, So I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't call myself, you know, a Buddhist or a Hindu or any particular label from a religious tradition, but contemplative experience and contemplative practice is still, you know, is is very much an important part of my life and work as a as a person and as a philosopher. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, such an interesting background. I mean, I think the phrase "coming by it honestly" probably, you know, it's it's the best way to describe <laughs> um, describe what you're just sharing. Um, so, you know, shift, shifting attention to 
some of the work that you've done recently. And, and, and part of what I really appreciated, I'll just say this before we, we jump into the questions, really appreciated about uh, reading your work, seeing you talk about it, is the way that you know, really you are weaving together these different disciplines in a way that, that, that they really serve each other. You know, the philosophy is not just the sort of uh, disembodied philosophy. It, it, it's, 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 it's philosophical questioning in service of helping push forward you know, the, the field of science, the field of cognitive science, you know, asking questions, t- questioning assumptions that are already present, you know, in the current field and saying, hey, maybe we could, you know, investigate, explore this. Um, so, 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 you know, that, those are part of the things that I want to kind of get into with you, the sort of areas where you're, you're currently pushing, currently exploring, um, you know, with this whole interface that you just described. Great. So, okay, so first thing, um, uh, talking a bit about uh, this this sort of narrative structure that you use in your most recent book, you know, waking, dreaming, being. It seems like these three areas of waking, dreaming, and then this. You know, I guess it's a type of dreaming, but it's like deep, dreamless sleep. And we mm-hmm. normally think of as you know, just like lights out. Um, in the waking part uh, of the book, you talk a bit about this sort of uh, feedback loop or cycle of attentional training, and it's one I totally recognize. You know, from my own practice where you know, first you sort of bring your attention to whatever the object is, uh, whether it's the breath or um, even if it's changing experience, doesn't matter. But the bringing of attention at some point, you know, the mind wanders, you can't sustain that attention forever. Uh, and this is where, you know, the narrative self comes online. And then there's at some point an awareness uh, that, that our mind is wandering. And then there's, uh, you know, if we're lucky, <laughs> a shift back. <laughs> Um, you know, to, to, to the object and to noticing. Um, and you, you mentioned, you know, in that sort of cycle or in that feedback loop of training, you mentioned some of the kind of the bio uh, correlates of this in terms of the brain. And, and mm-hmm. this is something we've talked a bit about, and it comes out, you mentioned from the, the two, 2007 uh, study in Toronto. That, and, and it sounds like you were there at the time uh, that the study was being done, which I which found was quite interesting. Um, around the default mode network and the sort of the experiential network. Mm-hmm. Um, but you mentioned something that I'd never heard of before, and that is in that, that, that sort of period of, um, you know, becoming aware that the mind is wandering, but that's actually a different network uh, in the brain. And you, you mentioned it's called the salience network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was wondering if you could talk a bit about this, this cycle of, of training and these different networks and, you know, kind of how are these things are connected are connected and what do they mean and why are they important? Right. Okay. So um, I guess, first of all, maybe I'll just step back and just say something about the the structure of the book within which to kind of place these more particular things. Um, so the, the book is called Waking Dreaming Being. And what I try to do in the book is I try to examine the way that awareness and our sense of self shifts across being awake, falling asleep, dreaming, lucid dreaming, um, deep and dreamless sleep, re-emerging into waking consciousness, various kinds of meditative states. And that's that's the, the, the overarching framework for the book. And then I look specifically at awareness and how the sense of self shifts through the lenses of cognitive science and what it tells us about those processes and also meditative contemplative experience and the philosophical tradition, say in Indian Buddhism, that underpin um, those those meditative practices. So in the case of the waking state, I mean, the waking state is a state in which 
the sort of dominant perceptual, the dominant um, modality of awareness is is perceptual awareness in which attention is is jumping around from one sensory content to another. You know, you're looking at something and then you, you know, your eyes shift to something else. You hear something, you have a sense of a visceral and interoceptive sense of your body. So it's very much a, a place in which, or a state in which awareness is grounded on a sense of self as identified with um, bodily presence in the world or in an environment where attention is jumping from one sensory content to another. And then, of course, also very paramount in the waking state is the way that attention can shift away from immediate sensory contents into a train of thought when we daydream or when we mind wander. And there, the sense of self is an image of the self that is the self as remembered in the past or the self as projected or anticipated as being in the future. And that sense of self is a purely mental content in the sense that it's an image you have. And of course, there's a lot of current bodily affect that will go along with the image, but it's very much a kind of um, mentally represented sense of self, what what psychologists talk about in terms of mental time travel, where you're able to remember with a sense of personal past and project yourself into the future. Now, in the context of, say, meditation, contemplative practice where you're training attention or training mindfulness, all of those aspects of the waking state become um, very noticeable because you're not moving about, you're, at least in the case of sitting meditation, you know, you're sitting, you are initially focusing your attention, say, on the sensations of the breath. So that's a sensory content. But then, of course, your mind wanders, you get caught up in some train of thought, which is typically about some representation of yourself. So you're remembering something or you're planning something. So that kind of mentally represented, mind-wandering sense of self then becomes paramount. And at a certain point, of course, you notice that that's what you're doing, that you're no longer attending to the breath. And so you shift your attention, you you, you disengage your attention from the mind-wandering and you shift it back to the sensations of the breath and you sustain your attention there for a while. And then, of course, inevitably, your, your, you know, your mind goes somewhere else. So there's a kind of cycle there that I think anyone who's practiced meditation becomes immediately familiar with where there's a intention to place your attention somewhere. So an intention to place your attention on the breath, that's an intention in the moment, but it's also an intention that you have to kind of sustain so that your attention can remain placed on the breath. But then inevitably you wander away from that. So there's distraction. At a certain point, you notice the distraction and then you disengage from the distraction and you return your attention back to the breath. So that's cognitive scientists have represented that as a kind of cycle of attention. And they've used meditation practitioners to try to track some of the neural um, networks that are, let's say, um, put into play throughout that cycle. So one caveat here is that, especially if you read popular articles about the science of meditation, you'll often see these psychological processes like attention, mind wandering, distraction, as if they mapped straightforwardly onto a particular region of the brain or a particular brain network. And the true story is that it's, it's, it's way more complicated than that, than that. And so it's not really the case that we can make a one-to-one mapping between the 
the psychological processes and how we experience those and, you know, particular regions or neural networks. But that being said, there are certain, at the present state of our ability to study the brain and image the brain, certain networks that are crucial for um, focusing and sustaining attention. So, for example, areas that have to do with what's called a frontoparietal control network, where that's very much about uh, being able to hold your attention somewhere in a way that's related to memory so that you're actually remembering. And this is the literal meaning of the word mindfulness, actually, in the sense of sati or smriti, is that you're holding in mind where to keep your mind from moment to moment. And your mind doesn't wobble away from that um, that intention. That's how uh, the, the image of wobbling away comes from, comes from Buddha Gosa. So that whole sort of set of regions, the frontal parietal control network is crucial for that. Then, um, and also for sustaining, for, for shifting your attention and sustaining your attention. And then in terms of becoming distracted or being caught up in mind wandering, there's a lot of discussion these days about how the so-called default network, which is a set of regions that um, show activity in the context of brain imaging when you're not really being asked to do anything in particular. You're just lying in the scanner, um, in a sense, resting in that you're not performing some particularly attention-demanding task. And these areas are actually quite active. And a number of these areas are associated with things like mental time travel, projecting yourself into the past and um, uh, projecting yourself into the future. So the default network has been strongly linked to mind wandering, but it's important to say again that other areas and networks are also involved in um, mind wandering, so it can't just be collapsed onto the default network. And then at a certain point, you become aware of distraction. And some um, cognitive scientists have hypothesized or proposed that in the case of distraction awareness, that is becoming aware of distraction, that at a certain point, something becomes kind of salient to you such that you notice your mind is no longer on the breath. Maybe you know, you're caught up in a very kind of powerful mental image with a lot of emotional or affective content. And because of that kind of strong resonance, you get drawn into it and you take it to be real. But then there's a way in which you, you might even say you um, subliminally or subconsciously remember that actually what you're trying to do is sustain your attention on the breath. And so you're able to sort of step back or, or decenter to use a kind of cognitive um, therapy language and see that thought as, as just a thought rather than as something real. And so the salience network, this is a network that includes the, um, the anterior insula and the anterior cingulate cortex. And it has a lot to do with um, what's salient to you given the kind of affect that's keyed to it. So people have have proposed that this salience network um, is really crucial for noticing that distraction in a way that has to do with the affective salience of the mental content so that you can step back and go, oh, actually, that's just a thought. That's just an image. It's not it's not real in, in um, the sense that it's actually what's happening now and then shift your attention again back to the breath. So that's that cycle with some of the, um, some of the different kinds of networks and regions that, that people have talked about. Okay, interesting. I appreciate the way you're describing that. And you know, as you're describing the, the, the salience part, it almost makes me think, you know, it's like we get caught up so intensively in a thought, affect, feeling 
in the body that it's it's almost like it becomes so so intense that we sort of some part of us goes wait a second <laughs> what's going right. on here almost almost like we go off the rails and, and and by becoming so immersed in those forms of thought and emotion that they, they almost point us back to to their lack of of realness that's right and 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 from a cognitive science perspective there's actually a very interesting question which is um in the way that say meditation is taught you'll be taught okay so you know place your awareness on the breath at you know inevitably your mind will wander um when you notice your mind wandering you know don't judge that don't judge you know oh i'm a really bad meditator because i've wandered away and i you know wasn't able to keep my attention on the breath just take note of the mind wandering return your attention to the breath and the way that that's described psychologically is to say at a certain point you become aware of your mind wandering or you notice your mind wandering and in virtue of that you're able to shift your awareness back to the breath and subjectively it definitely seems like that but from a cognitive science perspective it's actually an interesting question whether the noticing of the mind wandering is in a way a kind of after the fact retrospective phenomenon right. and what really happens is that the mind wandering kind of runs its course and you then stop mind wandering and you notice that you've stopped retrospectively, but you didn't stop because you actually noticed the mind wandering. There's a, there's a possibility of a kind of, you know, retrospective confabulation that may, that may happen so that subjectively it seems to us, oh, I stopped mind wandering because I noticed that I was mind wandering. Whereas it, it, it may turn out, and this is, as I say, this is an open question that psychologists and cognitive scientists, neuroscientists are investigating, it may turn out actually no, um, it doesn't really quite work like that. You, um, the mind wandering comes to an end, and then you notice that you're that you're no longer really mind wandering, and you're able to actually shift back. And so that's a kind of you know interesting open question at the interface of contemplative practice and cognitive science. Yeah, no, that's that is a really interesting question, and it's one that connects with what you're talking about with intention and volition. Um, you know, and if if intention and volition in in a longer term sense is to hold the intention in mind. Maybe not even consciously, but mm -hmm. but it's That's there right. somewhere. Exactly, and it gets triggered, you know, at some point. That's right. You kind of reshape the mental processes in virtue of the intention, but the reshaping is actually, in in many ways, kind of below what seems, you know, paramount to awareness. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. It, it also strikes me when you're describing that instruction, you know, of, um, of when you've noticed your mind is wandering, don't judge it, but simply return. Um, that then in some ways that sounds like, you know, to use uh, Ken McLeod's terminology, mm -hmm. also a conflation of, of the method and the result. Mm -hmm. you know, it's like the result of, of bringing your mind back again and again can be that you don't judge yourself. But, that's right. But that's, that's right. not actually the method. <laughs> right, right. Initially. Sure. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, 
you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.